You may be seated. Please open your Bibles to Matthew 5, verses 38 to 48. If you don't have one with you, you can find one in the front of the pew. It is red. Matthew 5, 38 to 48, um, we hear Jesus speaking his um, sermon on the mount to the crowds who have been following him. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than the others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me as we look at God's word. Great God and Father, I pray that as we hear the words of Jesus Christ, as we walk again this week um, into his calling that he paints here in the Sermon on the Mount for us and our lives, that we would hear it built up on the gospel and that we would hear it called forward into Christ-likeness. I pray that you would be with all of us sinners as we sit under this word, that we might be attentive to it, and with me a sinner as I preach it. pray all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So growing up, one of the things that I remember um, is watching football down in our basement with my parents and, you know, Monday night football and bowl games and all of that stuff. And one of the constants that I remember from watching those games was one of the voices narrating the plays, which was John Madden. And you guys remember John Madden, right? At least some of you do. Uh, he used to be a player and a coach, although that was a little before my time, but he probably got most famous as being an announcer for football games. And I remember him because he was often hilarious and he would go on these funny kind of side things about french fries or corn in Nebraska, which growing up in Nebraska was always something that I got a kick out of. Um, But one of the things I most remember is his tendency to state the obvious. So I went and looked up some quotes from Madden, uh, and here are just a couple of instances, for example, and these are all word-for-word quotes. The best way to gain more yards is advance the ball down the field from the line of scrimmage. Yep. They're either going to run the ball here or they're going to pass it. Again, (laughs) yes. And my favorite, usually the team that scores the most points wins the game. (laughs) Usually. (laughs) Now, I suppose that some of that is just the curse of being a football commentator, right? You have to talk for thousands of hours about games, and there are 
for anybody, I'm sure, there are these moments where suddenly you should say something intelligent, but you realize that you don't have anything intelligent to say, and so again you say something like, and again I quote, well, when you're playing good football, it's good football, and if you don't have good football, then you're not really playing good football. But Madden's comments also point to a kind of deeper reality, right? It's not really a complicated thing to win a football game. All you really have to do is score more points than the other side. And the way you do that is by running the ball or passing it down the field, trying to get it into the end zone. The reason we find those quotes funny is because they're true, and it's not a complicated thing, but that doesn't make it easy. I can tell you that what you need to do is score more points than the other team, but what I can't tell you is how. That's why I'm not the coach of a pro football team. It's easier said than done. And that's how I feel when I think about this text this morning. It's not actually that hard to understand what Jesus is saying to do, to love everyone, especially those people you least want to. Love your enemies, he said. Turn the other cheek. We might debate some of the particulars of when and how those commands apply, But each of us knows at least some places in our lives where they should, and we don't particularly want them to. Because it's hard. We know people that we should love like that, but they're so frustrating. And so just telling us to go do it can sound a lot like telling us we should just score more points. It's ignoring the 300-pound linemen of reality that are standing in our way. So here's what I want us to do this morning. First, I do want to spend a few minutes thinking about what Jesus is saying, what it means to love our enemies and not resist evil. We're going to spend some time thinking about our calling to love. But then what I'd like to do is dig deeper and ask, okay, but how do I do that? How do I live that kind of hard calling in my life? So let's go. First, a few minutes on the commands. What is Jesus calling us to do in these verses? What is our calling to love? Before we answer that question, we probably need to give a few notes about what Jesus isn't discussing, because I think when we come to these texts, oftentimes our first impulses are to go to the most complicated places rather than the most immediate ones. So, as we've said before, the Sermon on the Mount is addressed to Christians. It is explaining how they are to live as citizens of Jesus' new creation, and that means that in the case of this text... The primary aim of these verses is not global politics or systems of justice or something like that. There are lots of people who immediately want to go there when we start talking about um, these verses. Leo Tolstoy, the famous Russian novelist and, and mystic, for example, he quoted this passage in this famous essay where he argued that Christians should be dedicated to abolishing armies and police officers and courts and the justice system. Because there should be no cops, we should all just turn the other cheek, and there should be no courts. If someone takes your robe, you just give him your your coat too. And the problem with that approach is that it takes a set of commands for Christians and applies it generally to all human beings, which is a problem first because not everybody has the resources Jesus expects us to have as Christians in relationship to Jesus, and more than that because we always need to take the whole counsel of Scripture when we wrestle with those kinds of issues— And scripture clearly sees these institutions as part of God's provision to restrain sin in the world. So if you take Romans 13, for example, 
Paul describes the role of a ruler in society, and here's what he says in verse 4. He says, He is God's servant for your good, but if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he's the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So this passage is not about states and politics, all right? We need to kind of be mindful of that as we dive into it. It's not about pacifism or... um, that we should get rid of the justice system or any of the things that people sometimes want to talk about. It isn't to say that there's nothing that we might apply to our political lives from this passage, but that would be a lot more complicated discussion. But more than that, I think that um, if we go down that road, that needs to be said up front, we're actually talking about secondary issues and missing the primary challenge of these commands to us. Jesus is calling us to some deeply challenging things in these verses. First, he's calling us to surrender our rights. To surrender our rights. So look at verse 38. Jesus quotes this Old Testament law, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. And in the law of Moses, that was meant to be a way of limiting justice, all right, in courts. You can't demand more than was taken from you. So if your neighbor kills your bull, you can't go and kill his kids in response. If he, if he punches you in the mouth and knocks out your tooth, you can't go chop off his head. That was the original role of this command, um, that it's a limitation on justice. But the way many people in Jesus' day took it, and let's be honest, I think the way that many of us would like to take it, is that we should always get our pound of flesh. That while Moses is saying we can't demand more than an eye for an eye, the people Jesus is speaking to have changed that to mean that you never take any less. They hurt me, and I'm going to make sure that they hurt in return, is the attitude he's confronting. Jesus is calling us to surrender those rights. So if someone slaps you, your right is to slap them back. But Jesus says in verse 39, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. If someone sues you and takes your shirt, don't get in some big legal battle over it, he says, but hand over your coat as well. And that's not just about coats and extra miles. It's meant to give us a general principle for how we as human beings treat people that wrong us. And again, it's not a civil principle or about society as a whole, right? If someone is hurting a child, I ought to step in and stop him. But if someone is hurting me, Jesus says I'm not to resist him. Even though I have the right to punch him back, my call as a Christian is to surrender that right. And that's a challenging command, and in a few minutes we'll talk to the how of it. But it's followed by an even more challenging one in some ways. Jesus isn't just calling us to surrender our rights— He's actually calling us to love our enemies, to love them. He says in verse 43, You have heard, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, interestingly, unlike the other statements Jesus has made, this one isn't from the Old Testament. But it's a common idea in Jesus' day. It was how the Pharisees taught people to view the world, that there were your people, your fellow Jews, and you were to love them, and then there was everybody else, and they were your enemies, and you should dance while they burned. But Jesus says instead in verse 44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. 
This means we're given a positive calling. It's not just that we surrender our rights in a sense where we refrain from hurting people that hurt us, but we're actually called to love them, to be kind to them and seek their good. We're called to love them. Indeed, for Jesus, it is perhaps only this love for enemies that can really be proven to be love at all. As he asks in verse 46, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Which is to say, big deal. Love is not just reciprocity, right? If people are nice to you, you're nice to them, and you get this nice little exchange of niceness going, and that's great, but Jesus says that is not love. Instead, he asks, are not even the tax collectors doing that? For Jesus, a life of love is most realized when our enemies are the ones that we love. Because those are the only times that you can really tell that it's love. Loving when you know you're not going to get something nice in return. Loving when it might even make life harder for you. That, to Jesus, is what we're called to do. We said at the outset of the series that there's a sense in which the Sermon on the Mount feels like the world is being turned upside down. And this command is one of those places where I feel like it is, right? Because imagine that person that you like the least, the person who's the cruelest to you. How do you want to treat that person? Well, if you're like me, what you want to do first is to make them suffer. I mean, I think about all those, those revenge movies, right? Where the main character completely destroys their enemies. Isn't part of why we like to watch those movies because they provide us these sort of fantasies for what we would like to do? Maybe you're just better than me, but, but I would just love to call that person who's a jerk to me and say, listen, I don't have what you want, but what I do have is a very specific set of skills, skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. That is what my heart wants when I deal with my enemies. And hopefully we don't do that, right? But, but what we often still do, at least what I do, is just sort of avoid that person, do my best to never encounter them or, or think about them. And that's an improvement. It's better than being Liam Neeson and taken towards them. But Jesus is calling us to even more than that. He's calling us to pray for them and to do good to them. He's saying we should send them encouraging notes and praise their achievements and show them random acts of kindness. He's saying we should love them. And that is hard for all of us. It is hard for me Because love doesn't fit with any of the responses that I would like to take. Love doesn't fit with destroying their lives, no. But neither does it fit with being passive-aggressive with them. Love doesn't fit with talking about them badly behind their backs. Love means I can't secretly plan elaborate Count of Monte Cristo-style revenge fantasies about them, even if I never put them into practice. What Jesus is calling us to do, when we're personally offended or wronged, is to surrender our rights and instead to respond with love. And that does sound, at least to me, a lot like saying, to win you need to score more points than the other guy. It's one thing to hear that calling and another to actually be able to put it into practice. So our natural question then when we confront that command is how. How in the world could we do that? Jesus' words here, I think, actually give us two answers. Two ways we can learn to have this kind of love. First, it is by dying to self. Jesus is calling us to die to ourselves. This is what lies behind his call to surrender our rights. Jesus' discussions about turning the other cheek 
and going the extra mile. Those are not meant to be like sort of case laws where we say, okay, well, I'll go one extra mile. But once it's two, like, then we're done. Rather, Jesus is trying to say that instead of looking to our selfish interests, we're to serve the interests of others. Or take verse 42. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. I feel like as soon as we hear those words, people start asking all kinds of questions, right? They say, well, what about, what about the fr- my friend who's addicted to gambling and who I know is going to come try to bum money off me so he can just go feed that addiction? Like, should I lend to him? And on the one hand, the answer to that question is probably not. These sayings aren't meant to be mechanically applied, and the law of love means that there are exceptional circumstances where it might be more loving not to give the person the money. But on the other hand our tendency to immediately start thinking in those ways, to start thinking about the exceptions, reveals how hard I think these commands really are for us to hear. The fact is that I am not a very generous person. I don't want to sacrifice my resources. And because of that, I want to start talking about degenerate gamblers instead of talking about all of the other people that I know and to whom this command would actually apply. That tendency is a perfect example of the kind of selfishness Jesus is calling us to die to. The idea of dying to ourselves is central to Jesus' teachings. In Luke 9.23, he says that if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Every impulse in the world And every fiber of my being drives me to seek my own self-interest. There are lots of people with fancy degrees these days who will even tell you that that's a good thing. But in the Christian story, that kind of self-centeredness is the root of everything that is wrong. Look at the Garden of Eden. Satan comes to Eve at the very beginning of everything. And he says, here's why God doesn't want you to eat of the fruit God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Which is to say, you're missing out on something. Think about yourself and your interests. Put yourself ahead of God's calling. Indeed, it is this love of self that's the root of almost all of the world's evil. Imagine a world where everybody put other people's interests above their own. Would there be wars in that kind of world? I don't think so. Would there be hunger or crime or any of the other ills of society if we, each of us, was thinking about the good of the other over the good of ourselves? Even private problems. Would people do drugs or engage in destructive habits knowing the harm that it's going to cause the people around them? In a world where we didn't think of ourselves as greater than others, there would be none of that. Of course, we don't live in that world. In our world, everyone is out for themselves on some level, which can make Jesus' command sound foolish. Who will look out for me if I don't? Now, part of that answer is God, and we're going to get to that in a minute. But it's also worth reflecting on the fact that that is exactly the logic that leads to the endless cycles of violence that are all around us. Nobody wants to be the first one to die to themselves, and so the vicious circle continues. But according to Jesus, it is Christians who have that calling. We are to be the ones who end those cycles of violence. We are to be the ones who give up 
our selfish rights. We're to be the ones who, like Jesus, responds to the world's evil by dying for it. George Mueller, a great saint who started a whole series of orphanages in Great Britain in the 19th century, he gave this memorable articulation of this calling. After years of fighting for it, he records the place he had arrived like this. He says, I died, utterly died, to George Mueller and his opinions, preferences, tastes, and will. Died to the world, its approval or censure. Died to the approval or blame of even my brothers and friends. And since then, I have studied only to show myself approved unto God. That is to be our goal. To pursue that kind of death to ourselves. Death to the approval of the world. Death to the opinions, even of those closest to us. Death even to our own preferences and desires. The goal of Christianity The goal we're called to pursue is to die to everything but the opinion of God and what he desires and calls us to do. What does that sort of dying to self look like in practice? I think it looks something like this. Think about those moments when you feel angry or offended or annoyed, when you feel like you need to defend or justify yourself. If you're like me, you have plenty of those moments every day. Maybe you even had one this morning. In those moments... We always tell ourselves these stories to kind of justify our feelings. We think that we're standing up for principle or for truth. We say that we're defending justice or fairness or some other noble thing. And maybe we are. There is a place for, for indignation in the Christian walk at anger or injustice or evil. But if you're like me, often the story is actually just a story. I talk like I am outraged because of truth and justice in the American way, but actually, my outrage is much pettier. I'm angry because someone isn't giving me what I want, or they aren't giving me the amount of respect that I obviously deserve. I'm angry because I love myself, and somehow the world fails to love me as much as I do. So how do I sort out that, that, that thing in my heart, what the difference is between those justified times and the stories I tell? That practice of dying to self requires two things, a discipline and an honesty. First, it requires a discipline because we need to always be watching our hearts for those moments, watching for those feelings. And when we notice them, that anger and indignation, we need to, the discipline to pause instead of acting on it, to take a step back and kind of mentally sit ourselves down and say, what is going on here? And then we need an honesty to really discern the truth, to really short out whether I am showing a righteous anger or simply my own self-centeredness. And I'll be honest, at least for me, 90% of the time, it's the latter. Honesty kind of requires an attitude in this instance of guilty until proven innocent with our hearts, because my heart runs along very selfish paths, and it's usually the case But when I'm calling for justice, I'm really just trying to justify my love of myself. So we're called to love, to love even the least lovable. And part of how we do this is by learning to die to ourselves. But that still doesn't feel like the full answer, does it? That sounds a lot like someone asking, how do I become a great football player? And being told, easy, you just work out and practice for hours a day every day for the rest of your life. Technically, that is true, but that isn't the deeper how 
of what motivates us. Fortunately, I think Jesus answers that side of the question as well. How do we pursue this calling to love our enemies? What motivates us? Jesus' answer is by living out of God. Living out of God. And I know that phrase, out of, might strike us as odd, but here's what I mean. The Christian life is meant to be rooted on something beyond ourselves and beyond this world. By being rooted in God himself, in his character and work, that is what enables us to live the way that he calls us to. And that's clearly the idea for Jesus. He roots this calling in God in several ways. First, he roots his call to love our enemies in the example of God. The example of God and his grace. As verse 48 puts it, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So we're to model our lives on God's life. Jesus uses this picture in verse 45. God causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And that doesn't strike us as a big deal, maybe, but it should. Because think about what we do to God in our sin. One of the ways Scripture views sin is as rebellion. God created the world and created us. And we're like rebellious teenagers, slamming doors and kicking holes in the walls of the house he built. Except it's even worse than that, right? Every good thing we have on earth, every raindrop and sunrise and cold drink and hot steak, every touch of affection or laugh of a child, every one of those things is a gift of God. And the way we all respond to that gift is by giving heaven the middle finger and going our own ways and spitting on the one who gives it to us. Jesus' point is that despite that kind of rebellion, God keeps on giving. That you can go out of this place and blaspheme all that is holy, and while I wouldn't recommend it, the sun is still going to warm your face. That is the reality of the world that we live in right now. So Jesus is saying, If that is how God behaves, then how can we act differently? More than that, it isn't just the example of God's grace that drives us to love, but it's our experience of that grace, our experience of God's grace. In verse 45, Jesus calls us children of our Father in heaven, that we are God's children. But here's the question. Does that mean in the next verse that we're the good? Does that make us the righteous? No, that's point of, part of Jesus' point too. He says that you shouldn't only love those who love you, and then he says to take our Heavenly Father as an example of this. That he is an example because he doesn't only love the people who love him, he also loves people like us. Here's how the Apostle Paul summarizes what happens in the Gospel. In Romans 5, 8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Or in Ephesians 2, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Or even more simply, as John puts it in 1 John, we love because before we loved, God first loved us. We, each of us in ourselves, is an enemy of God. We are rebels and sinners. We were before our conversion. We still are in many ways. 
Even today, when I choose my selfish desires over serving my heavenly Father, I am thumbing my nose at God, but he still loves me and still forgives me and still welcomes me in. And the question Jesus means to ask us is that if that is how God treats us, how can we treat people otherwise? In Matthew 18, Jesus tells this parable of a servant who he says owes like $100,000 to his master. And he can't pay, and his master forgives the debt. And then that servant goes out from his master and runs into another servant. And this one owes him like $1,000. And the first servant demands repayment, and when he can't get it, has the second servant thrown in jail. And that, Jesus says, is what we are like when we don't show mercy. That we have experienced unimaginable grace. We who are God's enemies are treated as his sons and daughters. So how do we get to treat our enemies differently? If we've been shown grace, it's the worst sort of thing to show something other than grace to those that we encounter. So we live out of God's example of grace and even more our experience of God's grace. But there's one last way we're called to live out of God to love our enemies. And I think it's maybe the most foundational. Here's the reason when I look in my heart that I really struggle with this call. Because I wonder, if I'm not looking out for myself, then who is? If I love my enemies, if I turn the other cheek and go the extra mile, that puts me in a place of vulnerability. How do I survive? How am I protected if I'm in this vulnerable place? Jesus actually gives a hint about that in our text as well. Look at verse 45 again. It says that we are children of our Father in heaven. That's where we get the idea that we should follow God's example. Yes, our Father makes the sun rise and the rain fall on the righteous and the wicked. But there's another truth there as well. It is our Father who makes the sun come up in the morning. It is our Father whose providence makes rain fall from the sky. And it is that Father who takes care of us as well. Or look at verse 46. Jesus asks, if, the, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? What's that talk about rewards? It is a reminder to us that God takes care of us. God blesses and looks out for our interests as we seek to love those around us. The reason we can love earthly enemies, even though it might cost us insecurity and time and pride, is that we have a secure inheritance with our Heavenly Father. And that is something that no earthly enemy can take away from us. There's the foundation of our call to love our enemy. The security of God's grace. The security of God's grace. The Christian call to love rests on the knowledge that God provides for us. God takes care of us. And so we are freed from having to look out for number one and instead are able to love our enemies, as Christ calls us. Have you ever noticed how brave kids get when their parents are with them? They're willing to jump into that swimming pool. They're able to go back to bed despite the monster in the closet. They're ready to confront that bully who leaves them trembling when they are standing beside their father or mother. They are able to do these things because of the security that a good parent provides. They know their father or mother is going to take care of them, 
And so they can do what needs to be done. And in Christianity, you and I are called sons and daughters of the living God. Our heavenly Father is with us. And his presence is meant to be even greater than that of a parent with their child. That we can love with all the risks and sacrifices and demands because we know our Heavenly Father is taking care of us and so we can do what needs to be done. That ultimately is how we pursue our call to love our enemies. It's how we follow this command. Or if I can return to the original analogy, how do you score more points than the other, thing, than the other team? It takes two things. First, it takes dying to yourself. You have to work and practice and labor to serve some goal greater than your own comfort or security. You have to get out in the field and face those 300-pound linemen ready to smash you into the ground because you're serving a cause greater than yourself. And you have to go there with a team at your back. You have to be rooted in something larger than yourself. One of the key things that makes a successful quarterback, for example, is not his skill or his dedication, but the security of his offensive line. He operates out of that security that they provide. Likewise, with Jesus, we go out into the world seeking to love because we have died to ourselves, because we have turned from what is easiest and safest for us to a calling greater than ourselves, And we go out into the world seeking to love because our Father has loved us and because he does love us and protects us from all harm. In the knowledge of that reality, let's go out into the world and share that love, even with those who we want to the least. Would you pray with me this morning? God and Father, I'm always humbled when I hear these calls and recognize how far short of Christ's love, I fall. I pray that you would teach me and teach each of us to die to ourselves and trusting in you and following the example of your grace to show your love and welcome to all those we encounter, especially our enemies. Pray these things in his name who died to save us who were far off. Amen. Do you stand with me and sing to the Lord?